I have been studying with you, as uh, Mitch mentioned, the church and um, its past, present, and future. I'll not go back over the things I've already said. It would be redundant to you. I want to talk for a little while tonight about the future of the church. And by the ecclesia, by the church, I, I mean the church not only individually but collectively. Uh, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and therefore I cannot know for sure exactly what's going to happen to each congregation. I would hope that they would remain firm, and I try to preach to the end to teach the younger people so that when the church falls into their hands, it will continue to stand for the old Jerusalem gospel. Because let's face it, the church is going to fall into younger hands. If you project this church 60 years in the future, probably the elders, most of them, will be dead, if not all of them. And therefore, you'll have to have, or this church will have to have new elders. And what it does will depend on that eldership and upon the membership. That's just the reality. And since I do not know what that will be, I cannot project about this congregation, neither can you. We would hope that it would continue to stay within the confines of the Word of God and speak only as the oracles of God. That could be our prayer and certainly is our prayer. But, of course, we never know that. We do know what's going to happen to the church from the standpoint of it being delivered up. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 15 in just a moment. But I, another thing I want to say about the church is I have never thought that every member of the church is going to heaven because I've read my Bible too much. And I have read over in Matthew 13 in the parable of the um, tares, as we call it, uh, the Lord said God would take out of his kingdom all that offend and do iniquity. And so I believe the good Lord is saying that uh, some people in the kingdom will not be saved. And when I read of that parable in Matthew 25 about the talents, and I read that uh, the one talent man was in the kingdom, and I believe he was in the church, and he didn't do anything, and Jesus uh, said, bind him hand and foot and cast him in doubt or darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that tells me that just because a person is a member of the church doesn't mean his passport is signed to eternal bliss. I find that in the Bible. But I believe that uh, the members of the church who remain faithful unto death, as the Bible said, uh, Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Not all members are going to be faithful unto death. Some of them are faithful and some are not. Uh, Therefore, I I do not take the position that all people in the church are actually going to heaven. I would hope they would. But having studied my Bible, some are just not going to be, as the Lord said, as faithful as they should be. You know, the word saved, S-A-V-E-D, is used two ways in your Bible. One is the emancipation from sin, as in Mark sixteen fifteen and 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, what does that mean? Saved in heaven? No. Saved from sin. It doesn't mean that your passport is signed to heaven when you're baptized. You're saved from your sins. As a matter of fact, sins are mentioned in Acts 2.38, the remission of sins. So that salvation refers to salvation from sin. But over in the Romans, the uh, 13th chapter, and I believe verse 11, in the latter part of that verse, it says, Paul says, now is your salvation nearer than when you believed. Now that's the salvation in heaven. That is the eternal salvation. 
Because he said, your salvation is nearer than when you believe. And therefore, that means you've made it to heaven. Now, I understand that in the field of theology, uh, they do not believe that. They believe that if you're once saved, you're always saved. As a matter of fact, I've had discussions enough. I know what the preachers have told me. They say, well, if, if, if you're saved, well, they call it once in grace, always in grace. Of course, that goes back to, uh, that goes back to John uh, Calvin, uh, who I talked, whom I, I talked about last night back during the Reformation. We call it Calvinism. Uh, he gave the world what is known as the Tulip Doctrine, uh, because he mentioned uh, several things with the word tulip that he believed, and 99% of your denominations have that written in their creeds. For example, the word T means total depravity. That means that they believe that little babies are born in sin. Little babies are not born in sin. They're born safe, S-A-F-E, which means not liable to danger. Someone asked me one time, said, are little babies saved? I said, no, they're not saved because that would imply they had been lost. They're safe. There's a difference in safe and saved. The word saved means to deliver from danger. The word safe means not liable to danger. So when you talk about little babies, you don't want to say they're saved. They're safe in the arms of Jesus. In other words, if they die, they're certainly going to go to heaven. But the theologians, Calvinistic theologians, don't believe that. That's the T, total depravity. T-U, unconditional election is you. They believe that certain people are going to go to heaven and certain are going to go to hell. And that number can't be changed. And the word L stands for limited atonement. They believe the atonement is limited only to the elect. And that if you're not among the elect, you couldn't go to heaven even if you wanted to. None of this is true, but it is their doctrine. It, it's false all the way through. And the I, I, means the impossibility of apostasy. And the last word, T-U-L-I-P, means the perseverance of the saints, which means that uh, they're going to persevere regardless. They're, they're going to be saved. The old version of it, and I've heard some preachers said, if you seek it, you can't find it. If you find it, you can't get it. If you get it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never did have it. That's sort of the, the version of the Calvinistic theory. Sometimes I call it the theological triplets. And if you start out false, you can't wind up right. If you've done mathematics, whether it's algebra, arithmetic, or geometry, you know if you make a mistake in that problem at the beginning or somewhere along the way, you're not going to end up with the right answer. When you start out with the idea that little babies are born in sin, you're not going to come out with the right sal uh, plan of salvation because you started out wrong. Little babies are not totally depraved. Total means complete, depraved means bad. Little babies are not bad by nature. They're safe. Well, I said all of that... Uh, in talking on this word saved, I, I told you that sometimes the word saved is used, emancipation from sin. Sometimes it means uh, saved in heaven. 
I have been asked the question, uh, Preacher Hoagland, they say, what must the church do to be saved? Now, by the church, they mean um, individuals in the church, because really, if we go to heaven, we're going on an individual basis and not collectively. There are going to be people in some congregations who will go to heaven and some that will not be, will go to hell. God will judge you individually. I imagine right here in this church, right here in this church on the day of judgment, some of you are going to make it to heaven, but some of you may not make it. Therefore, when I talk about what must the church do to be saved, I'm basically talking about individuals and, and to some degree, even the function of a, of a congregation under its eldership. There are three things indispensable with you going to heaven, and I want you to remember them about a church, a congregation. Number one, in order for it to be saved eternally, it's got to be kept doctrinally sound. And if it's not doctrinally sound, it's gone. You know, in Second John 9, John said, Whosoever goeth onward and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, that's not God. He that abideth in the doctrine hath both the Father and the Son. If any come among you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed becomes a partaker of his evil deeds. Pretty strong language. Pretty strong language. And what John is talking about is that the church must stay within the doctrine of Christ on all issues. Uh, that means it must teach the right plan of salvation. It's got to teach the right organization of the church. It's got to teach the worship of the church according to the pattern. It's got to teach everything according to Scripture, and therefore it is what we commonly call doctrinally sound. Number two, it's got to keep morally, morally clean. There are certain moral standards in the Bible which we must espouse, and if a church becomes morally unclean, which we have in 1 Corinthians 5 in regard to the fornicator, you remember that, uh, that church is not going to be saved because it, it, it is not morally clean. Number three, it must be kept diligent in service. And by that, I mean that the church must be active in service in doing something. If there's any parable that teaches that, it's the parable of the talents. That one talent man was not immoral. And I don't know that he was doctrinally unsound. But what he lacked is working in the kingdom of God. He sat down upon the stool of do-nothing and whittled on the stick of do-less, as an old cliche says. He's like a lot of members of the church. You can't get anything out of them. They always pass the buck to someone else. They're not going to do anything. That one talent man said, I've buried my talent. I've done nothing, Lord, and I want to give it back to you. Lord said, why haven't you gained another talent? Well, he had no answer. He says, take that unprofitable servant, cast him into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Therefore, I say, ladies and gentlemen, that in order for the church to be saved in heaven, it's got to be kept doctrinally sound, morally clean, and diligent in service. All three of them, and don't you forget it. I've been preaching a long time. I've heard a lot of preachers. And some of them get sidetracked. I attended the church one time, and all that preacher talked on was morals. That's all he talked on. Every sermon was, had something to do with morals. And maybe what he said was the truth. 
It wasn't what he said, it's what he didn't say. But the church went into digression because it left the doctrine. He didn't give them a balanced diet. You can't just deal on, even if it's doctrine. You could get up here and preach your life out on the doctrine, and if the church isn't diligent in service, and if it's morally unclean, it's still going to hell. You know, a lot of preachers don't know that. When I preach, I try to give a balanced doctrine. It may take me a little time, I don't, but, but I'm going to get around all three of them. You know why? If you don't feed a church on all three, they'll slip up on one of them that you're not preaching on. Someone said, well, that makes sense. It is sense. You've got a preacher has to preach on all three. I finally asked a man, he was preaching on, this preacher was on fire for the Lord. Everything was just, oh, he would just get up in the pulpit and he'd talk and he, well, that's all right. You need to fill them with enthusiasm. I said, can you preach a sermon on doctrine? Well, I don't know. I never have. I said, you need to learn to. Did you know some preachers fall into that category? Brother, let me tell you something. I've been around a few years. I've I've, uh, been in a few rodeos, as they say. And so I know what I'm talking about. You've got to preach on all three of them. And I don't know of anything else that you'd have to tell a church except those three things. Do you know of anything else? If so, what is it? It covers the whole spectrum. Doctrinally sound. Morally clean. Diligent in service. Now, I want to talk about the future of the church as far as the Bible is concerned. And if you don't care, I'm going to read here from 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite chapters. And by the way, it's a long chapter, and I, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to show you what's going to happen to the church if it's faithful. Now, God's going to take out of his kingdom all that offended do it. When I talk about where the church is going, I'm talking about the faithful ones. You, you faithful members, that, that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. Let's read. From 1 Corinthians 15, I'm beginning with verse 21. For since by man came death... By man came also the resurrection of the dead. All right? And then he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ are all made alive. You know what we lost unconditionally in Adam, we gained unconditionally in Christ. I had a person tell me one time, that he said, uh, Ward, I'll tell you what, I think it's unfair on the part of God for us to have to die physically because old Adam sinned. He said, he's picking on us. Why didn't he take care of him? But why do we have to die? He said, we all have to die. I said, that's right. I said, you didn't read the rest of the verse. I said, we gain it back in Christ and even more. He would have been unfair if we didn't have the rest of the verse. We die in Adam. What we lost in Adam, we gain in Jesus. We're going to, we're going to be raised from the dead. So he wasn't unfair. Yes, you're going to die physically because of Adam's sin. If you don't think you're going to die, you just hang around a while. You're going to die. And the reason you're going to die is because the Bible says you are. And the reason the Bible says you're going to die is that you're going to die in Adam. But thank God you can be, you can overcome that death through Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. And he's going to deal with the future of the church. Which were you talking about? He says, For every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, they that are Christ that is coming. That possessive uh, noun there, Christ. Christ. Did you notice that? We are Christ because we belong to Christ. He says, Christ is the first fruits. He was raised from the dead in that he was the first to be raised never to die again. Then we're coming along. We're going to be the next ones. The church. The church, if you please. Members of the church. He says, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. He must reign. I, in the next few verses, I want you to notice the pronouns, he and him. And sometimes it gets a little difficult to figure out their antecedents. There's ten of them. Ten of them. But I like it. It's wonderful. It's great. It's a wonderful reading. Uh, he must reign. He who, Christ, refers to Christ. And uh, he must reign till when? He puts a limit on it. He said he must reign until... The last enemy is put under his feet. And the last enemy is death. Well, where is Christ now? Well, he's reigning now because death hasn't been, uh, hasn't been overcome yet because the dead haven't been raised. So he's reigning. Well, where is he reigning? Reigning at the right hand of God in David's spiritual throne over his kingdom of which you're a part if you're in the kingdom or church. He's reigning over you. That's where he is right now. He, Christ, is reigning. And he's going to reign and he's going to keep reigning until the last enemy is put under his feet. He speaks of death as an enemy. And it is. Death is an enemy. There's no one in here that, I guess, wants to die physically. It's an enemy. And yet, we all have to face it. We face reality. And the Bible calls it an enemy. And I believe it is. But you're going you're gonna to overcome it, brother, sister. And I'm going to tell you how. So by being a member of the church, by being in the kingdom, which is going to be what? He said it's going to be delivered up. Delivered up to whom? Delivered up to God. And if you're a part of it, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be delivered up to God in that immortal body and which God's going to give you. We're going to read about it in just a minute. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Gives us hope. And the only hope we have is through Christ and in the kingdom. I don't know of anything else that's going to be delivered up except the kingdom. Do you? If so, where is it? Give me book, chapter, and verse. I don't know of anything going to be delivered. And someone says, what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom's made up of people. And who are the people? Well, they're born again. John 3, 5. Nicodemus... Uh, Jesus told him he had to be born of the water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom. You know that. And if you're in the kingdom, you're going to be delivered up. But if, if you're not in the kingdom, my friend, you're on the outside looking in. You're not going to be delivered up. The kingdom will be delivered up. And, and as it says here in the text, he's going to reign. And let's, let's notice them. It says, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, he, he cried. But how's he going to do that? How's he going to put down all of these things? He's going to do it by being having us raised from the dead. That's how he's going to do it. 
For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last dominion destroyed his death. For he, there's our pronoun again. Let's hit it. For he hath put all things under his feet. Oh, he who put all things under his feet. Oh, that's God. Now you got a different antecedent. You follow me? For he hath put all things under his feet. God put these things under Christ's feet. And indeed he did. Now let's read on. But when he saith all things are put under him, there's him, that is under Christ. Let's notice the pronouns. He says, it is manifest that he is accepted. Who is accepted? He who? God. Someone says, then that means God is not under Christ. That is correct. Everything else is under him, but God's not under Christ. God's not under anyone. See how plain that is? You've got to watch those pronouns. And he says, but he is accepted, which did put all things under him. But who put all things under him? God did. But he's an exception to the rule. He's not under Christ, but we are. Wonderful, isn't it? And then he says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then, then is an adverb of time, which shall the Son also himself. Subdued unto him. Who is the him here? Well, it is God, because the next sentence tells you what it is. Then the Son also himself. That is, Jesus himself be subject unto him, God, that put all things under him, Christ. I told you you had ten of them, and they're alive, and they're working. That God may be all in all. Now, brother, that's when it's over. We're in the cycle now. I call it the cycle of God. God up there in heaven, before he made this earth, he looked down the corridors of time. And he says, I'm going to create earth. I'm going to put it out here in space and let it rotate upon its axis at the speed of a thousand miles an hour at the equator. I'm going to send it once a year around the sun and let it give the seasons and so people can raise crops and so those people can survive down there on earth. I'm going to give them sunshine and rain so they can raise something to eat. So they won't starve to death. And I'm going to start out with Adam and Eve, and I'm going to go through patriarchy of 2,500 years and Judaism of 1,500 years. I'm going to make a promise to Abraham, and I'm going to champion my universal cause through one man, and his name is Abraham, and I'm going to put down the mighty kingdoms of antiquity. And I'm going to send Jesus from the loins of Abraham, and he's going to be the Savior of the world. He'll be born of a virgin. He'll be born in the city of Bethlehem. He'll be born in poverty. He will select 12 apostles. He'll promise to build his kingdom or his church. It'll come into existence. And it's going to exist until I, the Lord comes again. Jesus comes again. And that's what we're reading about now. And we're in the last cycle now. We're waiting on Jesus to come. I'm waiting on him to come. I don't know when he'll come. But I'm, I know that's the next thing on the agenda. We've had patriarchy, we've had Judaism, the church started, it's been in existence a couple of thousand years. Someone said, well, when is Jesus coming? Well, I don't know. 
Some people try to tell you they know, but they all miss it. William Miller missed it. You know William Miller who started the Second Advent Church? Remember back, what is it, 19 something that he, he said that the Lord was going to return on October, I believe, and, and the people made uh, uh, robes out of bed sheets and got up on barns and they got up on houses and thought Jesus was coming and, and they, he didn't come because William Miller was a false prophet. No one knows when Jesus is coming. I don't know, but I know it's coming, but I don't know when. But I know that's the next thing on the agenda, and I know what's going to happen when he comes because he tells me right here. He's going to reign until the last enemy, which is death, is put under his feet, and then we're going to be raised from the dead. Now, I want to skip down to verse 35. I, uh, I have a sermon I preach on the people baptized for the dead, but that's another subject. I'm, not, I'm going to skip down to verse 55 because this deals with our subject, uh, down to 35, rather. But some man will say, how will the dead be raised up, and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. Paul gives an illustration of sowing wheat and, or something else. And you know that in order for it to produce, it dies, and, and, and then you put it in, in the ground, and it, it sprouts up. And, and, and what comes up doesn't even look like the seed you planted. Uh, well, he's going to discuss the immortality of the soul here and that the new body God's going to give you. He's going to give you a new body. It's going to be an immortal body. Someone said, will it look like this one? Well, I don't know. I hope mine doesn't. I hope it's better looking. But he's going to, he's going to give me a body, but it's going to be a spiritual body. Listen to this. And that which thou sowest, uh, sowest not the body that shall be, but bare grain it may chance be wheat or some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it pleases him, and to every man a, a seed, uh, to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men and the flesh of, of beast and another flesh uh, of fishes and uh, that of birds and then celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, earthly and heavenly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of terrestrial is another. He's just getting us ready to talk about that body we're going to have and giving an illustration. But let's read about it. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, and uh, they differ. They differ in glory, as, as he says in this verse forty-one. Then so, so also in the resurrection. Now we're down to the nitty-gritty. He said, "So in the resurrection of the dead, it is sown in corruption; it is raised in incorruption." What? Well, this body you're going to have. This is a corruptible body. Yours is a corruptible body. You know that. And you know what's going to happen to it when you die and they put you in the ground. You know what happens to this body. It's corruptible. And there's nothing we can do about it. He says, uh, but it's going to be raised in what? Incorruption. You know what that is. It means opposite of corruptible. It won't die. It is not corruptible. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What? The new body. The new body. We're talking about what's happening to the church that's going to be delivered up. Paul's talking to Christian people. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Well, I believe that. I believe this is a natural body. But I'm going to have a spiritual body. And so are you. And that's what's going to be raised. 
And he says, uh, as it is written, the, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last man, Adam, was a quickening spirit. And there he illustrates the difference between Adam number one and Adam number two. Howbeit that which was first, uh, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, that which is natural, Adam. And after that, which is spiritual, referring to Jesus. The first man was of the earth early. The second man was the Lord from heaven. Contrasting Adam with the Lord Jesus from heaven. But he's still talking about this body. That's his subject. As it is the earthly, uh, as is the earthly, such are they which are uh, of the earth, and as of the heavenly, they are uh, of the heavenly, as verse 48. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And I believe that. I don't know too much about that, but uh, I do know that we're going to bear the image. We shall see Jesus as he is. Now this I say, brethren, that uh, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Uh, the uh, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. And uh, I think that refers not only to the coming into the church, but also it refers, ladies and gentlemen, to our transporting into heaven. Uh, we will not have a body of the flesh and blood. I was preaching a sermon the other day on the body of Jesus, the title of it, the body of Jesus. And I, I went through all of the passages which Jesus, in which Jesus made appearances after his uh, resurrection. And he showed them the handprints and the place in his side. And he ate a broiled fish and some honeycomb. And, and he's doing all of that to show them that he was still in that physical body, which was raised. That's the reason he's doing all of that. But that's not the body that ascended from the descent of the Mount of Olives when it went up through the clouds and the apostles stand there gazing into heaven when Jesus was caught up. Somewhere in that trip, the body of Jesus was, trained, was changed to a spiritual body because flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so it was changed somewhere along the way. And as I was preaching, a thought occurred to me that I would never thought before. I, I thought... The Lord appeared to Paul on the Damascus road so he'd qualify as an apostle. In fact, in the first part of this chapter, he mentions that. And I got to thinking, when Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road, did he appear in a spiritual body or a physical body where the nail prints could be seen as he did to the others? And I never thought about that. But I came to the conclusion that possibly... He was transformed again into that physical body just like he was when he appeared to the other apostles so the apostle Paul could see him because I don't know what a spiritual body looks like. Paul says, have I not seen the Lord? He did see him. And I believe he saw the same Lord the other apostles saw. I don't know whether you ever thought about that or not. But he did make an appearance to Paul. And I wondered what body he was in. I, I believe it was uh, so Paul could be an apostle that he appeared just like he did to the other apostles. Of course, that, there's no big thing about it. it. It wouldn't have anything to do, I guess, with your salvation. But I'm going to tell you something. Uh, it uh, it uh, was enough to convince Paul that Jesus was the Christ, and he said he'd seen the Lord. Well... In Greek mythology, there was a god by the name of Hermes. And he's supposed to interpret other gods. 
And we derive some of our words from Greek mythology and uh, the hermeneutics. The word hermeneutics, we, uh, we think of that as an understanding of the Bible or the interpretation of the Bible. Do we not? Someone said, um, Preacher, is the Bible easy to understand? I said, that's a complex question, but I, I'll say this. I believe that it, the plan of salvation and how you make it to heaven is easy to understand. I do not tell you that everything in the Bible is real easy to understand because Peter said it wasn't. He said Paul has written some things hard to understand, which the unstable rest to their own destruction. That is, they twist those scriptures. When you get into the apocalyptic part of the Bible, the signs and symbols and imagery and metaphors and similes, such as you have in the book of Revelation, where you see a horse or a different colored horse or a, a lion with a man's head on him and, or, or a, a dragon that had a tail long enough that he could knock the stars out of their orbits. All of that's highly figurative language. And I think the seven churches of Asia pretty well understood all of those signs and symbols, but I doubt that any of us maybe 100% comprehend that. But I don't think you have to to go to heaven. Thank God. Now, I'm answering your question. The scriptures that deal with the plan of salvation are so simple. And how to live the Christian life is simple. Now, the apocalyptic language... You might have a problem with that, as we all do. I have a problem with it. Unfortunately, uh, some brethren like to get into Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. And some of them claim they have an answer to every little detail of that. But I don't think they do. They have their own opinion. I taught Revelation, but I, I let people know that I'm not dogmatic about some of that stuff. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm not going to make it contradict some plain statement in the Bible because when I do, I know I'm teaching false doctrine. When you make apocalyptic language contradict anything that's plain, you're not teaching the truth. Remember that. And some folks do. They like to get into the book of Revelation. I uh, I was trying to talk to this fellow one time about going to heaven and trying to convert him. And I was taking him to those plain passages telling him what to do to be saved. And he said, I'd like to talk about the mark of the beast. I said, well, we've got time to talk about the mark of the beast. I said, let's, let's get you saved first. You know, some people, they want to get into something way out yonder in the left field. Instead of studying something simple, they, they want to know what the dragon was that had that long tail that knocked the stars out of the orbit. What does that mean? You can't settle them down to study what to do to be saved. So, yes, the Bible is easy to understand as far as what you must do to be saved. But those things that are very difficult have nothing to do with you going to heaven anyway. The Lord wouldn't do that to you. Now, it was good for the seven churches of Asia. And John wrote the revelation to them, the apocalypse. But 
what's going to happen to the church? Well, here it says this mortal body will put on immortality. And then shall come to pass the saying that death is swallowed up in victory, as we have here in the 15th chapter. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, as it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and it is, and the strength of sin is the law, because sin is a transgression of the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's my lesson. So what's going to happen to the church? Well, it's going to be delivered up. And if you're faithful unto death, you're going to be a part of it. and You're going to go to heaven.